your Bibles are open to 1 Thessalonians, I, I'll, I've got a message that I've known for probably six months that I'm supposed to preach. And I don't know, Brother Vasek, when you preach out, do you ever feel real confident? And then you sit in the service and you think, Lord, do you really want me to preach that one? That's kind of the way it's been, but the Lord's given me assurance. I know this is what God wants. I hope you'll listen. I hope I can be helpful tonight. It is said that when D.L. Moody preached, he would often uh, speak to his congregation. And before he'd get into the sermon, he would give to them what he referred to as a watch word. He said, I'm going to give you this word. He said, you may not remember my outline, but he said, I hope that every time you hear this word from this point on, the truth that comes across this pulpit will come ringing back into your heart and you'll be reminded of that truth and you'll allow the Holy Spirit to continue to do a work in your heart. He wanted his message to live on. I think the worst thing that happens is we go to church, we hear a sermon, it's all good, and we go home, and the next day we can't even remember what the thing was about. And God forbid that that should happen with what we've heard on Monday and Tuesday night. And I know you had Saturday and Sunday uh, and and so forth. Uh, I'm going to give you a watchword tonight. I'm going to follow in Moody's uh, example just a little bit. And I'm going to give you a word that is not found in our text. You can scour 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1 and you will not find the word there But you will find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, example after example, illustration after illustration of this most important word. It is a word that applies to every individual in this room, whether you are a preacher or you are a a, a lay person, whether you're an adult or a teenager, whether you're a child, uh, whether you're a brand new convert or you've been saved for decades, this word applies to all of us. It is that which we all possess, uh, and we possess it in a far greater degree than we comprehend. The purpose of tonight's message is for us to understand the importance of this word in our lives, to understand the magnitude that it, it is represented in our lives. I'm not talking about, oh yeah, Pastor Clark has one of these and man, he's got to be careful about that. I'm talking about that little girl sitting right there, third chair in, in the second row. She's got one of these and it is as vital for her to understand this and grasp this and utilize it under the Spirit of God as it is for Pastor Clark, Pastor Vasek, or Pastor Bitch. The word is testimony. Word is testimony. Sometimes we think of the word testimony as that's what somebody does at the Thanksgiving service. We stand up and give a testimony I'm thankful for. And that certainly is a definition of that word. But the word testimony as it's found in our text that we'll look at in a moment has nothing to do with that which we say. It has to do with that which we live. The reputation that we have as a result of how we're living our lives. One has said that the word testimony is defined as the witness of our words coupled together with the witness of our works. It's not just what we say. It's not just what we proclaim or profess. It's what we live coupled together with that profession that determines our testimony. Look with me tonight in in this chapter. I think if Paul had a favorite church, it would be one of two. It would either be Philippi or it would be Thessalonica. It'd be one of those two. I think it's a coin toss to see which. 
Um, he, he spoke so much of both of them when he was writing to Corinth, which I, he loved Corinth. He, he loved it passionately, but I'm not sure he would say, that's my favorite church. He wrote about that church, the more I, I love you, the less I be loved. That was the carnal church. Uh, to that church, he pointed out uh, Philippi, and he pointed out Thessalonica and said, hey, you ought to be like those churches. Those churches, man, they gave themselves to the Lord, and, and uh, uh, they willingly gave above and beyond their power. And Paul testified of these churches. Thessalonica, this church was born in great adversity. In Acts 17, Paul went into that little city in the northern region of the Greek peninsula, the Bible says that he was there for three Sabbath days. That, that's about a month's worth of time, no more than a month. He came into that town and he went to the synagogue, as was his custom, reasoning with them out of the scriptures, and some people got saved. It is evident from 1 Thessalonians 1, it wasn't just Jewish people got saved, but it seems like a lot of Gentiles got saved in this church because Paul writes to them later in 1 Thessalonians 1 about how they turned from idols to serve the living God. That would be Gentiles. The Jews did not worship idols in that period of their history. Uh, People got saved and, and all of that, but then a terrible persecution arose. Uh, Don't get surprised if the world hates us just for loving the Lord and proclaiming the gospel. Beware of this movement today that says that our goal is and our job is to make ourselves fashionable so that the world likes us. Jesus said, marvel not if the world hates you. We're not supposed to go out and be uh, hateful and we're not supposed to go out and try to make the world hate us. We're just supposed to live for the Lord and the devil's crowd's just going to do that. They don't like God's word. Happened in Thessalonica. Persecution came in this. These brand new Christians, Joe, they, they, they came to Paul, their pastor, and they said, you've got to leave. Uh, they've already beat Jason up, and they're coming after you. They're going to kill you. You've got to get out of here. And Paul listened to them, and he went off to another town called Berea and started a new church. So you've got a church that's about three and a half to four weeks old. Brother Joe, you've been here. You started, you started your church. Uh, if you would have stayed for three weeks and left, what would have been left in your wake? I would have said the same thing about Heritage Baptist Church in Jeanette at the end of three weeks. You know, the church basically still consisted of my wife and three kids and myself. Um, there wouldn't have been much. But when Paul left, there was a church. There was a church that withstood pressure. There was a church that withstood persecution. There was a church that withstood poverty, not for a little while, but over the long haul. There was a church that somehow in three weeks, they got so grounded in this book and they got so connected to the Savior that nothing could dissuade them to turn back and to just forget it all. This was an amazing church. And Paul writes to them, look with me, and then we're just going to pick it up at verse 2 after the greeting of verse 1. He says this, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Paul writes in the first, uh, these, these uh, verses 2 through 4, he talks of their testimony to him. He said, I just want, under, want you to understand, I just praise God for you. He said, every time I think of you, 
I think of I think of your love for God, your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope. Time out here, just a moment. When your pastor thinks of you, does he always rejoice? He should. Um, as pastors, we don't really have pastors anymore. The pastor I got saved under uh, uh, has been in heaven for a long time. Uh, but I, I got saved as a teenager. My wife and I were both bus kids and, and so forth. And uh, uh, I can remember one little brief period when I was a junior in high school that I got out, out of sorts with the Lord and I got out, out of sorts with the youth department in our church. And I know that for about six months I broke my pastor's heart. And every time I mention that, something cringes on the inside of me because uh, I want Pastor Nitz to be proud of me. Paul said of this church, here's your testimony to me. Every time I think of you, I think of your work of faith, I think of your labor of love, and I think of your patience of hope. He went on so far as to say in verse 4, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. I believe one thing he's saying there, he said, there's no doubt in my mind that you really got saved. You didn't just pray some prayer and then move on and go live your life the way you want. I mean, you really got this thing down. I know for a fact that you are born again children of God. They had a testimony to Paul. In verse number 5, Paul speaks of his testimony to them. He said, for our gospel came not unto you in word only but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. We cannot do anything without the Holy Ghost of God. Well, I think when we stand before God someday, I think we're going to find out how much God could have done if we would have let Him, if we would have learned to linger at the throne of grace. Somebody go get God. Paul said, it came in power and the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. What was the assurance that his message... He's coming in, he's preaching about the resurrection of Christ. You understand, we grew up with that. Whether you went to a Catholic church, I grew up Presbyterian uh, and all that. But I grew up with the virgin birth and, and the crucifixion and the resurrection. These people are hearing about something that nobody has ever heard about in that part of the world before. Uh, he said, but, but our preaching came in much assurance. What gave an assurance that what those men said was true? As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. He said, you watched us. It wasn't long. You didn't have us there for long, but you watched us. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. He refers to that time. He says in chapter 2, verse 10, Ye are witnesses, God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believed. Paul's talking about his testimony to them. So they have a testimony with Paul. Paul has a testimony with them. Now look back at chapter 1. They now have a testimony that has exploded beyond the walls of their church that's gone everywhere. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord. Having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost... Notice this, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia, that's the northern part of Greece, and Achaia, that's the southern part. He said you became an example to everybody in every region of the Greek peninsula. Now understand it, they did that without social media. We are so connected today that it's scary. I think we're so connected it's detrimental 
But they did it without social media. They did it without a printing press. They did it out without radio, without television. There's this little persecuted church up in a region known as Macedonia, this tiny town called Thessalonica. And, and yet everybody, all the way down to Corinth, all the way down to the Mediterranean Sea, everybody was talking about that church up there. Everybody was talking about how much they loved God. Everybody was talking about how their lives had been utterly transformed. Their testimony went further than they could have ever comprehended. Sometimes we have this idea that that I'm unimportant. No one notices me. I don't make a difference. Oh, I, I beg to differ with that. I want you to understand that church could have never comprehended before this letter that their testimony was making a difference anywhere, but it was making a difference everywhere. But it didn't stop at the borders of the Greek peninsula. Look in verse number 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. He said, anywhere I go, they know about your church. Everywhere I go. He'd been to Ephesus. And the people in Ephesus knew about Thessalonica. Now, how does that happen without all the connections that we have in modern society? A testimony spread like the ripples in a pond when you drop a pebble into that thing. Their testimony was enormous. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his Son whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come. Testimony. Their testimony to him, his testimony to them, and then the church's testimony to the, literally the rest of the world. By the way, there's a church from nearly 2,000 years ago, and through the pages of Scripture, they have a testimony that is lasting today because we're talking about them tonight. Here's an interesting little bit of history. If you were to go over to Ephesus today, uh, to the city that that is in the the ruins of that ancient city, there was one time a great church in Ephesus. Paul was the founding pastor. Timothy pastored that church. Uh, The apostle John pastored that church. One of the early fathers, Polycarp, uh, pastored that church. Uh, Read Revelation chapter 3 as John chided that church, or 2, because they left their first love. And the Lord said, if you don't repent of that, I'm going to remove your candlestick out of its place. God would rather have no church than a dead church. There's no church in Ephesus today. But I did some studying recently. There has always been a church and still is a church in Thessalonica today testimony the bible says this the bible says in proverbs 22 verse 1 that a good name that's a reputation that's a testimony is rather to be chosen than great riches uh not long ago they had that powerball thing is worth what 1.3 billion dollars or something like that i'm with you brother vasic i just don't like starbucks coffee I may be worse. I despise Starbucks coffee. There's something wrong with coffee that you keep dumping cream in it and it never changes color. That is just wrong. I'm the guy, I like gas station coffee. 
I do. It's 99 cents for no matter what size you get. You make it yourself. I love gas station coffee. But I'm telling you, when Powerball, that 1.3 billion jackpot was up there, I just didn't even bother. I didn't go to Starbucks either. I fasted from coffee for a while because everybody and their mother was lined up outside the gas stations buying Powerball tickets. I was in one time. Some guy was telling his friend he had just cashed his entire paycheck and he brought hundreds of dollars in and brought, bought Powerball tickets. Why? I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be rich. I I, I want to have riches. Here's what God says. He said a good testimony, a good name is more to be desired than great riches. What I'm talking about tonight is more than you having all the money that you could ever dream to buy everything that you've ever dreamed of. God said your testimony is worth more than that. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7.1, a good name is better than precious ointment. Remember the lady who broke that box of alabaster ointment upon the, the, the brow of our Savior? And uh, they, they grumbled because it was so valuable. It was almost a year's salary in that thing. Um, God said, I'm telling you, precious ointment may be aromatic. It, 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 it may be beautiful. It may, it, it may be uh, drawing attention. But I want you to understand that a good name is a whole lot better than that. Everybody's got one. The Bible says, in, in, again, in the book of uh, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 11, even a child is known by his doings. Even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure and whether it be right. Years ago when I was a youth pastor in Apollo, Pennsylvania, we had a little Christian school. We had a little boy that came to our school, and uh, he's just as cute as a, of a kid as you'd ever want to see. He, he's a little bitty guy. He was a first grader. And I mean, he's just, he just the poster child for just a cute kid. But he was a pathological liar. I mean, we didn't trust anything that came out of Michael's mouth. I was standing behind him one day. It was in ACE school. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. And every day they took home a homework slip and, uh, or a demerit slip, and mom or dad had to sign it and bring it back. Well, I'm standing behind him before school one day, and here's Michael, and he's got his pencil out. He's trying to forge his mother's signature on his homework slip. He's six years old. He doesn't even know how to do cursive yet. He's trying to forge his mom's hair. And I I just stood there and I just watched the whole thing. We had uh, pledges and opening prayer and came by to collect them. And I said, uh, I picked up his slip. I said, "Uh, Mike, would your mom sign that? Oh, yeah, she signed it last night. I got my homework done early and she signed it right away. I said, that's your mom's signature. You know, it it looked like a six-year-old wrote it. I said, Michael, really, that's your mom? Yeah, yeah, my mom. When did she do that? She did it last night. Michael, would, would you be surprised if I told you I was standing behind you when you wrote your mom's name? Oh, no. No, I didn't write my mom's name there. My mom wrote that last night. And I could not get Michael to tell me the truth. I, I could not do it for the life of me. So when mom came to pick Michael up, uh, I said, we had a problem with Michael today. She said, what's that? I said, well, I I stood behind him. I watched him forge your signature on the homework slip. And then he lied to me about it. And she looked at me. She said, my son never lies. And at that moment, I realized it's a genetic problem. Runs in the family. Even a child is known by his doing, whether his work be pure and whether it be right. Now, with that said, it's all introduction thus far. With that said, I want us to allow the Holy Spirit to help us understand the enormity of our testimony. I don't want you to tonight be thinking, yeah, our pastor's got a testimony. There's a lot of people know our pastor and his family. And he preaches all over the place and they sing and they've got a CD or or, or two and all of that. He's got a testimony. No, I, I want you to say, you've got a testimony. 
that's every bit as vital as his. And it goes further than you even imagine. We're going to look at the scriptures tonight, and I want you to just follow me on the subject of testimony. Father, help me as I preach. Lord, I don't want to just be up here making noise. I don't want to just be up here wasting time. I just ask for a fresh and a clean and a pure anointing of the Holy Spirit. Hide me behind the cross. Allow me to be a help to God's people. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Teach us and guide us into all truth tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Testimony. I want you to understand tonight, every one of us has a testimony, first of all, before the Savior. Before the Savior. Brother Jenkins drew this out the other night in Genesis 18 when, when the, the Lord was with Abraham right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord, was, Lord said, shall I hide this thing from Abraham that I do? Should I hide this from him? And then God went on to say this in Genesis 18, 19. He said, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. God said, for I know him. God was about to entrust Abraham with something that no one else knew. He was about to entrust Abraham, if you will, with an opportunity to do something about it. And God was willing to trust Abraham with that knowledge and that burden because God said, I know him. I know how he lives. I know how he's raising his kids. And I know that I can bless him. God said, I know him. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. Tonight, you and I, we have a testimony before the Savior. The Savior knows what we really are. Everybody else knows what we pretend to be. And sometimes what we are is the real thing. But the Lord always knows whether it's pretend or whether it's real. The Lord's never fooled for even a moment. We go to great lengths. When we come into church, we're always on the best behavior. When we come into church, we're not cussing and swearing, and we're not lighting up cigarettes cigarettes and all that kind of stuff, because we know to come into church, that's not how you behave at church. But see, God knew what you were talking about in the car before you got here. God knows what we are. God knows what I am. God knows whether I prayed today or not. You assume that I did. You hope that I did. God knows if I did or if I didn't. God knows whether I read my Bible today or not. We had Brother Kirby Campbell at our church uh, along with Brother Clark back in April. Brother Kirby was telling me he was in a church and a pastor, uh, they were out to eat. And uh, uh, the pastor, uh, uh, they were Cracker Barrel and the, the wives were sitting over here. And he said, can we just go over there? There's an empty table. I need to talk to you. And Brother Campbell said, sure, and they were sitting there. He goes, I need to tell you something. He said, for the last 11 months, I have not read my Bible one time. Not one time. I've not read it looking for a sermon. I've not read it for a Sunday school lesson. I have not opened my Bible other than when I'm in church to preach from it. I have not read my Bible in 11 months. Kirby said, well, how do you preach? He said, every Sunday morning I get on the Internet 
and I download some sermons and I make a few tweaks to it so that it sounds like mine and I throw some illustration from my life in there. He said, I've been doing that for 11 months. His people had no idea. They thought everything was great. It was a church to look at it, uh, looked like everything was well. But I want you to understand something. The people didn't know, but God knows. We have a testimony for the tonight. The Savior knows who's saved in this room and who's lost. Say, Pastor, this is the Wednesday night crowd, a camp meeting. We've been here all week long. What are you talking about? Somebody not saved. The Lord knows who's saved and who's not. You understand, he had 12 disciples that he handpicked that followed him, and one of them was a lost man. Jesus went so far as to say, one of you is a devil. And nobody knew who it was, Joe. That night when, when, when uh, Jesus said, tonight one of you shall betray me, nobody knew it was Judas Iscariot. And even when he left the room to go do so, he had already told John, to whomsoever I will give the sop, that's the bread you, you, you sopped up the gravy with. He said, that's the one. And he handed it to Judas. I'm not saying you're unsaved, but tonight you're Judas. He handed it to Judas. The devil entered into him. And Jesus looked at him and said, whatever you're going to do, just do it. And Judas got up and left the room. And they still didn't think it was him. They just thought he went to buy more food. He looked that good. But he was lost. The Savior knows. Savior knows. See, we think this, this kind of a... This part of the sermon is only for the bus kids or the first-time visitor, but it's for the church member. The Great Awakening started in Enfield, Connecticut, because Jonathan Edwards was convinced that most of his church members were lost, sinners in the hands of an angry God. He preached it twice within two weeks. First time, nothing happened in his church, so he fasted and prayed for nearly two weeks. And the second time is when that revival broke out and his church members got saved. God knows whether you're saved or not. Now, I am not trying to make you doubt anything tonight. I think if you're saved, I can't make you doubt it. The, the, the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Praise the Lord for that. But I also know this. We can fake it pretty well. My son who's preaching for me tonight grew up in a preacher's home. As a young boy, he made a profession of faith. We tried to be careful with him. We never tried to just force our kids to do this. We wanted it to be the Lord. We wanted them to have understanding and conviction. And, and uh, we, we were there and Tim went through it when he was about five years old and he made a profession of faith, got baptized the whole nine yards. When he's in junior high, he made a, uh, a, a, another profession and said, I don't remember anything that happened when I was five. I just, I, I don't have any recollection of it, and he went through the whole thing again. But what we didn't know was when Tim went through it in junior high, it was all a, it was all a sham. He didn't got he had gotten in trouble at school, and he had he had kind of figured out that if he got in trouble at school, one of the ways to get out was to get saved. And everybody start rejoicing because you got saved. And he didn't tell he didn't tell anybody for for over a decade that that's all that happened to him in junior high. But from that moment on. Tim knew he wasn't saved. He, he didn't remember anything that happened at five. He just knew he wasn't saved. Every time he heard anybody preach about uh, getting saved, about hell, anything like that, he would just, just be ripped apart on the inside. He was in Bible college at Grace Baptist College. One Sunday night, I got a phone call after we got home from church, and it was my son. He said, Dad, I, I need to talk to you. He said, I hope, I hope you're not going to be mad at me. I'd had one or two of those calls, and I was really mad at him. And all I'm thinking is, what, what did you do? There are times that my favorite verse is, my son is a lunatic. I'm, I'm bracing for the worst. 
And all of a sudden I heard weeping on the other end of the line. Tim said, tonight Brother Jenkins was preaching. He said um, he didn't even preach on getting saved. He said, but all through the sermon, I just felt God telling me, Tim, you got to get saved. It's tonight or maybe never. And he said, Dad, nobody knew it. I've been putting on. I've been pretending. My son graduated with honors. My son got all the awards. Uh, by the time he was in high school, my son was running bus routes. My son was doing well in, in Bible college uh, and all of those things. But here he is going through all those things, and he was as lost as anybody could be. He said, tonight I just couldn't stand it, and I went forward. And I, I went to one of the assistant pastors and said, I'm not saved. And they led me to Christ. He said, I got baptized tonight. He said, Dad, I feel like the weight of the world has been lifted off of my shoulders. And I said, son, why, do you, why would you think I'd be mad for you to tell me that? Do you think that I'd rather have you go on pretending that you're saved than not be and die and go to hell so that my image as I raised all these godly kids would be intact? I said, son, I'd rather have nothing else than to know that you're saved. But he said in church for 20 years of his life, he heard the gospel from the day, from within minutes after birth, he was under the Burger King heat lamps in the hospital and I'm telling him how to get saved. And everybody thought he was saved. I thought he was saved. Mom thought he was saved. But the Lord knew he wasn't. Again, I'm not trying to make any doubt or anybody doubt their salvation. But three and a half weeks ago, I was preaching a Sunday morning from Ephesians 2 on the work of Christ. The work of Christ that he did for us. The work that he does in us. And the work that he does through us. It was a brief message, unlike tonight. And uh, we, we were done early. We had a lady that came forward and she got saved. We had somebody else came forward and got baptized. I was at the back door of the church, Brother Joe, shaking hands. One of our men, Tom Gerber, came up to me and he grabbed me. He said, can, can you come and talk to my son Matt and I for a few minutes? He said, it's pretty important. I, I said, sure. And I, I just kind of left where I was, ran. Matt was in my office. Matt's about six foot four. He is on deputation to the country of India. A graduate of Providence Baptist College, graduated with honors. At one time had the biggest bus route uh, at, at Brother Keith Gomez's church. Uh, he's done junior church. He sings in quartets. He was on a tour group. He's on deputation going to India. I walk in my office and there's this big six-foot guy, six-foot-four guy sitting on the uh, couch in my office next to his wife and they're both crying. I sit down. I said, Matt, tell me what's going on. And he just sat there and he cried and I just waited him out. He said, Pastor, he said, I'm not saved. He said, when I was 11, I I knew I wasn't saved because my parents said something happened when I was four, but I didn't remember it. He said, so I called him down one night and I told my dad at midnight that that I I wasn't saved and my dad went through with me. He said, but I never told my dad this. I never told anybody this till today. When I called my dad down, I knew I needed to get saved. I didn't want to go to hell, but I told God, I will not get baptized and I will let no one know that I wasn't saved. He said, no, I know baptism doesn't save you. He said, but I went to God in full-blown rebellion. He said, and I know that I just mouthed some words and made my dad happy. He said, but all this time I've known I wasn't saved. He's a missionary on his way to India. We talked for a while, and it was obvious Matt, Matt wasn't saved. 
He said, Pastor, I've, gone to, I've done all these things. He said, I've been to India for, for a month just recently. He said, I invested my life in that. He said, I know I'm supposed to go there. He said, but I've never really had a desire to serve the Lord. But I've always had a desire to have the desire. I just couldn't figure out why it was gone. He said, but it's because I'm not saved. I said, Matt, you know what to do. And I listened as this man just poured out his heart and trusted Christ as Savior. I said, you know what you need to do now? He said, I want to get baptized now. Church had been over for 40 minutes. I gathered the few people there, grabbed Pastor Wilson, said, I need you to baptize. He said, who's getting baptized? I said, Matt. Brian just looked at me and said, okay. I told everybody else, I said, you need to come in back into the auditorium. Anybody that was left, we had about 50 or 60 people still there. I said, something amazing is about to happen. I didn't tell them what. And they're all sitting there, and all of a sudden, there comes Pastor Wilson into the baptistry, and all of a sudden, there comes Matt. We just took him on at our missions conference to support him as a missionary. And he shared his testimony of everything that happened. And he said, I got saved. And he said, and for the first time in my life, I am not ashamed. It's not done. There are 50 or 60 people sitting there. I was standing in the back. I I don't generally baptize big, tall people uh, because of the prosthetic leg. When I put it in the the, uh, uh, waiters, uh, it floats. And it just automatically goes like this. And I'd rather not drown in the baptistry with a big guy. So I'm, I'm standing in the back. And a little boy asked me, said, man, I, I thought he was a missionary. How could he be a missionary and not be saved? And so we had a little conversation. And, and uh, I, I looked over and his dad was kind of looking because he was kind of wondering the same thing. I didn't think much more of it. I thought I answered the question fine with them. And uh, until Tuesday night, I got a text from the dad. He said, can I meet you at your office at 6.30 on my way home from work? I said, glad to. I went back in. He sat down. I got the exact same testimony as my son. I got the exact same testimony as Matt Gerber, a young man raised in church, made a profession of faith, but he said, I just did it because everybody else told me that I needed to do it. He said, I had no desire to change my life. I had no intention. He went on to become a drug addict for a while. He said, everybody thought I'm saved. My wife thinks I'm saved. My kids think I'm saved. He said, I'm, I'm as lost as can be. And I sat there while another six-foot-four man wept and cried and trusted Christ as a Savior, and the next Sunday got baptized. The Savior knows whether you're saved or not. I preached this at Dale Schwartz's church, this same sermon back in April, the one you bailed me out of because I decided to go to the hospital the next night. Um, and I got a text uh, at like midnight that night, and Pastor Schwartz said, Jack heard the testimony about your son, his son Jack. And he came to us and said, I've never been saved, and got saved. Savior knows. Savior, Savior knows whether you're right with God or not. Savior knows. Like I said, he knows whether you prayed or he knows how you're living. He knows what you're watching on the Internet. You have a testimony before the Savior. Let me hasten. We have a testimony before Satan. We have a testimony before Satan. Remember in Job? When Job uh, uh, or the, the angels of God were presenting themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them, the Lord said to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? Here's a man who had a testimony before the Savior, didn't he? Um, Hast thou considered my servant Job that there's none like him in all the earth, a just man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And Satan says, Doth not Job fear God for naught? For thou hast put a hedge all about him. 
and, and all that he hath. And what he was saying is that the only reason Job is uh, serving you because you've got this wall of protection about him. How did Satan know there was a wall of protection around Job? There's only one way he knew that. He tried to get to Job and couldn't get through it. God just put, if you will, in our terminology, a force field around him. Satan couldn't get to him. But Satan watched him, and God said, have you considered him? There's nobody like him in all the earth. Satan's been watching mankind for 6,000 years. Satan is not omniscient. He does not know everything. He's not omnipotent. He does not have all power. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He is not omnipresent. He can be in one place at a time. He is unlike God in that. But Satan uh, walks to and fro throughout the earth. Seeking whom he may desire. In fact, when the Lord said, where have you been? He said, I've been walking to and fro in the earth. He's walking around. And you have a testimony with him. Matthew, in, in the parables in Matthew 13, the Lord talks about the enemy sowing tares in the wheat field. The enemy Satan. Tares are those who look like Christians but aren't. They bring forth wicked fruit. Listen to this carefully. I believe in every church Satan has a go-to person. He wants to stir up some strife. He knows who to go to. He wants to kill the spirit. He knows who to go to. I'd rather have the testimony of being a just man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, than Satan's buddy. The Satan... I've been in the ministry 36 years, and in all this time, it seems like every time there's a church problem, it's always the same people at the core of the problem. Testimony before Satan. I need to hasten. I've taken a lot of time. We have a testimony before sinners. Before sinners. Daniel. What an amazing man from, from his youth all the way into old age. Daniel's one of the few people in the Bible that God does not record anything wrong that he ever did. He was a sinner like anyone else. God just didn't choose to write anything about it. All we see is this godly, prayerful man. Daniel chapter 6, he's been exalted to, if you will, the number two position in the empire of Persia, a heathen empire. There are 120 princes. There are three presidents of whom Daniel's chief. The only one above him is the king of Persia. I mean, he's, he is somebody, but of course in a situation like that, everybody's jealous of him. They're trying to bring him down. The Bible says then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful. Neither was there any error or fault found in him. The unsaved people were watching him with scrutiny. You need to mark it down. Your neighbors are watching you. Your unsaved family members are watching you. Your co-workers are watching you. And it might be that it's just people you don't even know are watching you. People in the line at Walmart or at the grocery store. People are watching us and, and they're, they're deciding through how we live whether what we say is true or whether it's false. Whether it's true, whether it's false. Um, we, we bought a house 11 years ago, and uh, to the, the, the right-hand side of us, there's a, there was an elderly couple there. He was a World War II veteran. He was recently uh, honored by the French government with the, what's comparable to an English knighthood from the country of France because he was so important in helping the French people at the, uh, during World War II. He was, a, he was a somebody. He was superintendent of schools. Uh, he was retired by the time that we moved in. When we went in, uh, moved in, of course, we went over and met them one day. 
uh, we gave them some tracts. We invited them to our church, and they said, oh, yeah, we know all about your church. Yeah, we're Roman Catholic, and they had the wall up and all of that. And uh, so we, we just thought, we'll just keep working at it, that type of thing. And, and they're a little bit persnickety. No, they're just really persnickety. Just really, there's woods behind our house. They own the woods. Somebody was helping me rake leaves, and they made the mistake of throwing leaves in their part of the woods. It's the woods, for crying out loud. It's covered in leaves. And they came out and said, uh, that's our land. You can't put leaves there. And I, I, I had forgotten to tell these kids that were doing it. Uh, they're kind of persnickety people, but they're our neighbors, and they needed Christ. Um, the church gave me a snowblower when we moved in. And uh, so I'd go out and do my, my driveway when we had uh, snow. And I'd, I'd always just go over there because he was an older man. He was, uh, he was uh, I, late 80s when we moved in there. And so I'd just go do his driveway for him and, and had a wheelchair ramp. And I'd clean that off for him and so forth and just put it away. And every snowstorm that winter, I just did his driveway. And never said anything about it. And uh, they never said anything to me. I never said anything to them. Well, the next year is when I lost my leg. But by wintertime, I had my first prosthesis, Leroy. And uh, so I got my snowblower out, and I did my driveway. And I went up the street, and I, went, I did his driveway. I shoveled off his wheelchair ramp and put my snowblower away. And that was one of those winters we had a ton of snow. So I was out there sometimes a couple times a week uh, doing his driveway. Um, he came home one time and saw his driveway cleared. And a neighbor was out there, and he looked. He, said, Who? he asked the neighbor across the street, he said, Did you do my driveway? And the guy pointed to me. He said, The guy with one leg? He said, yeah, I got a fruit basket out of that one. (laughs) For 11 years, for 11 years, I've been doing Bill's driveway. About seven years, seven, eight years ago, we decided to have our first full-blown Veterans Day service. We invited a group to come called the Antique Veterans. They're all World War II, Korean War, and uh, Vietnam War veterans. Uh, They have no spit and polish. They have none. None whatsoever, but they've got history. They've got history. Our church loved them. Well, Bill was a part of that. He went to every veteran's uh, funeral and, uh, you know, was part of the, the, the honor guard for them. And they came in and they, they presented the colors and all of that and so forth. And uh, uh, that day, I, I didn't have a lot of time. I made the mistake of asking them, tell us uh, w- when you serve, what branch of the military you're in, where you serve, and I got life stories. I, I never did that after that. We just said, hey, we're glad you're here. Uh, but the, the, they, And it was fascinating, some of the stories. So I, I just preached real simple on the gift of God as eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I preached on the gift and receiving the gift and what the gift was and, and all of those things. And uh, I was waiting at the back door. We had a couple of veterans saved that week, but Bill and his wife came, um, but they didn't move, staunch Roman Catholic. But on the way out, his wife pulled me aside, and she said, when I was in college in Tennessee, she said, I went to my Catholic church in the morning, but my roommate was a Baptist. She said, I'd go to her church at night, and I received that gift at her church. And that's first that we knew that she would say, she's in heaven now. She passed away a couple years ago from cancer. And, and so forth. And Bill just thanked nice service, you know, real gracious and dignified and walked on. And, uh, but two days later, I got a card in the mail and it was written, handwritten by Bill, real shaky handwriting. He was uh, about 90 now. And he said, thank you for the service. Thank you for the beautiful presentation that you gave to each of us. He said, I just wanted you to know this. I listened to everything you had to say. And I didn't tell you on Sunday, but I received that gift that you talked about. They're watching us. 
They're watching us. Bill tries to come to church as often as he can. He's got a live-in nurse now uh, that tries to get him there. He won't let her use the GPS. He gets lost every single Sunday. He ends up in New Haven and all that. He's made it twice because he keeps getting lost. But uh, we've talked. He, he's, he knows he's saved. He, he was instrumental in his nurse getting saved. Sinners, sinners are watching us. And what are the, we have a testimony before them. We have a testimony, um, and, and I'll, I'll really hasten, we have a testimony before the saints. But in our church knows what we really are. We can put on the dog, but they know how we talk on the phone. They follow us on Facebook, and they see everything we're griping about, everything that we're posting. We have a testimony. That's what Paul was writing about in 1 Thessalonians 1. Their testimony to him, his testimony to them, their testimony to everybody else. Testimony before the saints. We have a testimony before ourselves. At the end of the day, when I look in the mirror, I'm looking at one of two people who, know who's, who knows who I really am. One is God, the, om, the omniscient, all-knowing one, and the other is me. I know whether I just pulled the wool over everybody's eye or whether today I really yielded and tried to serve God. Paul said, for our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we've had our conversation in the world more abundantly to you word. Paul said when the, when the day is done, and he's writing to a church that didn't like him very much. He's writing to a church that criticized him an awful lot. He said, but I want, I want you to understand that our testimony is this. We rejoice because we got a clean conscience. We know that in simplicity and in godly sincerity, we've behaved ourselves. The testimony before ourselves. Can I say this? Regrets are terrible things to live with. Guilt is a terrible thing to live with. That's why we need to be right with the Lord. We have a testimony finally, if you will, between our spouses, our siblings, and our offspring. The people that live in our homes with us They know what we are. I can stand before the church on Sunday, but my wife knows what I was on Saturday. I'm not going to ask you if you ever did this because you have such a perfection about your home and your marriage and your life, but uh, there have been times my wife and I have had tiffs. You don't, I know. We've had tiffs. She's just stubborn. She's just like that. And she's not here and I can say it. <laughs> you know, there's nothing worse than going to church and I'm up there trying to be, you know, Pastor Bish and my wife's sitting back there like, why don't you tell him, big boy? <laughs> my son has a burden for college students. He loved working at Grace Baptist College. Uh, it was only the Lord that, that, that took him away from that. He said he, he, he was broken harder over how many kids came to school and they were so messed up because mom and dad were one thing at home and another thing at church and they didn't see reality. Trina and I were bus kids. We didn't know what it was to have a Christian home. We, we honestly didn't. And as our God gave us children, we started going to people that had raised kids successfully. We came to you. We came to your kids. And they were, they were already grown. We came to Brother Clark's kids and we asked them, said, tell us about your parents. Why did you guys turn out the way that you did? We talked to Mike and Charlie about this. Tell us why you turned out. Every time, no matter who we asked, Brother Vasek, the answer, the number one answer was the same. 
my parents were real. Number one answer, ding, 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 family feud, you win the prize. My parents were real. Remember Lot? The Bible says he was saved. He was a just man with a righteous soul. Not a righteous life, but a righteous soul. When the angels come in to warn him of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible says in Genesis 19 that he went to his sons-in-laws who had married his daughters and he tried to warn them to leave. But the Bible says, but he seemed unto them as one that mocked. He had spent all those years living for money and position and prestige and, and getting along with the wicked people of Sodom and playing the game with them. I don't think that he was in their sin, but, but he, was, he was condoning everything around him. And now he's trying to tell them about the Lord. Now he's trying to get his sons-in-law out of there. And they said, you seem unto us as one that mocked. And they perished. His daughters perished because his testimony was so wrong. Do you understand tonight? Our testimony is a huge thing. That's why God said that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches because our testimony goes all the way to heaven. And by the way, our testimony probably goes all the way to hell because there may be people that are there or will be there because of Christians who lived an ungodly life in their presence. Paul said our preaching came not just in word only but in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you. Now let me make a couple statements and I'm done. The testimony that we have is so important because, number one, it bolsters our witness for Christ. Bolsters our witness for Christ. Um, I, I found in New England here, people tend to watch us a lot before they make a commitment. It bolsters our testimony Number two, our, our, our testimony brings joy to those who've invested in our lives. I marveled all the way over here tonight that my son is preaching in my pulpit tonight. I marvel that he got saved. I marvel that as a 20-year-old, he said, I'm not ashamed. I'm, I'm going to get this right. He got saved. He got baptized. His life's been changed. And the truth of the matter, his mom and I have invested in his life for, for uh, 31 years now. And... It just brings such joy to us. When we started a church in Pennsylvania in 1991, my pastor was already retired, Pastor Robert Nitz. He's a man that ran the buses that came to our house. I asked him on our very first Father's Day if he would come down and preach, and he said, he said I don't have the strength to preach anymore. He's up in years. He, he was in very, very poor health. He said, but I'll come. I'd like to see your church. He said, I'll come and maybe I can give a testimony. He said, Pastor, just whatever you can do, I just, I just want to have you there. So he and his wife Mary came that, that, that Sunday morning and uh, he, he shared a little testimony and he was getting kind of frail. We went out to eat afterwards and uh, Mrs. Nitz, the pastor's wife, took me aside. And she said, Tom, I need to tell you something and I hope you'll never forget this. My pastor had a great ministry. He, has, he had people, still does, all over the world serving God that were called under his ministry. He just, I was just so blessed to be saved in that church. She said, of all the people that have gone out of our church to serve the Lord, she said, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you this, not to give you a big head, but I want you to know this. You're his favorite because you're the only bus kid. You weren't supposed to make it. And he's so proud of you. And then she looked at me, she said, don't let him down. I don't want to let him down. 
I don't want to let him down. Our testimony bolsters our witness for Christ. It brings joy to those that have invested our lives and it builds the faith of other believers. But in here was influenced by somebody that loved the Lord that either helped you get saved or helped you grow in grace. And I'm out of time and I need to move on. Let me make three final statements. Number one, your testimony is something of your own creation. Somebody told me, I preached a sermon in Missouri once, and a man walked up, he said, my dad used to tell me that your testimony is the only thing that you have that is really yours. Your salvation is something given to you by God. Your testimony is yours. Well, they give me a bad reputation. People may slander or say things, but the reality of what we are, that's our choice entirely. Don't blame it on your mom or your dad. Don't blame it on the church. Don't blame it on the other kids in the youth group. You make your choices. Number two, a testimony takes a lifetime to build, but a moment to destroy. Talk to David one night. One night. And he cast his family and his kingdom into years of chaos. One night. Your testimony takes a lifetime to build, but a moment to destroy. Let me say this on that line. Thank God they can still be rebuilt. Aren't you glad for a God of second chances? But what about the scars from all that? Let me say this in closing. Next to your salvation, your testimony is the most important thing you possess. Guard it with your life. Guard it with your life. Tonight, God knows if you're saved or not. Stop trying to fool anybody else. If you're not saved, deal with it tonight. God knows whether you're right with God or not. God knows whether you're in the will of God or not. Stop trying to fool him. Don't be Satan's go-to person. What do your co-workers think about your testimony? I've gone to places and said, oh yeah, I know somebody from that church. I know somebody from that church. And when they cuss and they swear and they tell all the dirty jokes and I always hang my head in shame, your testimony, guard it with your life. Father, help us.